Welcome to Captain's Log, the show devoted to discussions and insights into pop culture with an emphasis on cinema in the occasional themed episodes. This is your captain speaking, Jose Valle Jr. Let's begin our transmission. Stardate 0203-2020. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Captain's Log. Today, uh, we are taking a look at a powerfully moving film written and directed by one of my favorite directors and my pick for the best movie of 2014 from my best movies of the decade episode. That's right, Damon Chazelle's Whiplash. Before we get into that, I just have a quick update. As I had mentioned last episode, my short film, Static, is competing in a um, film festival this week, which is very exciting, but also kind of nerve-wracking. But I would like to let you all know that if you have not yet seen it, you can find the festival version on my new YouTube channel, Animal Productions. And while you're there, I would highly appreciate it if you were to give it a like and subscribe to the channel. I've been working on some video ideas, and I've got some stuff that should be up there soon. Uh, one kind of like movie analysis, movie essay. Um, so stay tuned for that. And with that, let's get into the news of the week with our segment, Did You See the News? Did you see the news that the Writers Guild handed out its top awards of the year in concurrent ceremonies on both the West and East Coast on Saturday night? This comes from Variety, which reported that Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won took home the award for original screenplay, winning out over nominees such as Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. Bong Joon-ho also made a reference to President Donald Trump's polarizing political agenda by observing, Some people make the barriers higher. We writers, we love to destroy the barriers. The other major film winners was Jojo Rabbit by to- uh, Taika Waititi, which beat out competitors such as Todd Phillips and Scott Silver for Joker. Oh boy, they got society hard. And on the TV side, HBO dominated with Succession, with which won Best Drama and Best Drama Episode. HBO also scored a Best Comedy Award for Barry, and in long form they got original screenplay for Chernobyl, while FX's Fosse slash Verdon won top prize for uh, adapted screenplay. But HBO wasn't done, and they also took home the comedy slash variety talk prize for last week tonight with John Oliver, who has now won that award four times. Did you see the box office news? Bad Boys for Life is still leading the box office for its third week in a row, with about $17.4 million at 3,705 domestic multiplexes. While Paramount's spy thriller The Rhythm Section, starring Blake Lively, has tanked in ninth place with a $2.9 million launch at 3,049 locations. Opening day audiences have given the film an unimpressive C-plus cinema score to go along with its 29% Rotten Tomatoes score. Ouch. I hope this movie makes its money back i don't think it will because it was made on a budget of 60 million dollars and for it to make 2.9 on opening weekend yowza did you see that the cw's monumental series arrow has finally come to an end the final episode of the series titled fade out aired on january 28th 
and saw the wrap-up of not just the eighth season of the series, but the wrap-up of the story of Oliver Queen in his crusade to right his father's wrong and save his city. In it, we saw the happy endings for many of the core Arrow team characters, such as Renee, also known as Wild Dog, who went on to become mayor of Star City, Felicity, who went into the afterlife with her husband, and lastly, and probably the one that came as a surprise to most viewers, we saw John Diggle get knocked back by an asteroid that landed a couple of feet in front of him, and he then approached it to find a container of sorts. As he opened the container, we heard his speech at Oliver's funeral reach a point where he said the words, Expect the unexpected. Oliver may be gone, but his mission endures. That mission lives on. Oliver lives on in the people that he inspired. Some will take that mission to the rest of the world, maybe even beyond that. Because if the past eight years has shown us anything, it's that this universe is far bigger than any of us could have dared imagined. Even if it is a little less bright without him in it. And... As he opens the container, a green light shines on his face, hinting that perhaps John Diggle has a future as a member of the Green Lantern Corps. After all, the Flash from Earth-90 in the Crisis crossover event did ask why he wasn't wearing his ring when he saw him. And perhaps the biggest news of the week, we got our first look at the three upcoming MCU Disney Plus series, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, WandaVision, and Loki, in a Super Bowl TV spot. Let's talk about what we got from the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. First, we see Sam Wilson practicing with Cap's shield. Meanwhile, we hear someone who sounds like Bucky saying it's time as Sam throws a shield towards a tree. We see people jumping out of an airplane in um, wing gliding suits or wing suits and Sam in his Falcon suit zipping through what looks like a canyon. We then see Bucky sporting a new, much shorter haircut as he stands in front of Zemo, looking less than thrilled about it aiming a gun at Zemo's head before letting the bullets fall out. We then get a look at the 50s sitcom-style Wanda Maximoff and Vision in black and white as Vision welcomes uh, her home, and we get a very quick glimpse of, um, of Wanda in different time period clothing, almost as if she is hopping through sitcom realities. We then see her and Vision almost rewinding to a standing position as a room around them and Vision himself are black and white, and Wanda remains in color and in modern clothing. We get a text line that says the universe is expanding, and then we get our first look at the back of U.S. Agent at a football game. U.S. Agent is the American government's pick for the new Captain America. We get the title screen for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier as Bucky walks away angrily from Sam in a hallway. The title screen for WandaVision as Wanda and, and Vision appear to be in either an 80s or 90s sitcom setting, and they are standing in front of two cribs. And finally, we get the title card for Loki with a titular character in a chair in a dark room wearing what appears to be some sort of prison uniform, smiling before saying, I'm going to burn this place to the ground. And the letters on his jumpsuit say TVA, which stands for Time Variance, um, Time Variance Authority. And um, we lastly get quick shots of the various shows, Sam and Bucky shaking hands, Wanda and Vision from the 50 smiling as the spot ends. And that's all the news we have, uh, so let me give you all some recommendations as we jump in to check this out. First off on the list for this week, we've got two songs uh, from the Lumineers. 
And I did two Lumineer songs because I can and because the Lumineers are great. And uh, I love the Lumineers. And if you have something to say about it, why don't you fucking fight me? Huh? Find me in the streets. You want to get glassed, I'll fucking glass you. Just say the word and we can do it. But the first one is It Wasn't Easy to Be Happy for You from their newest album, The Sparks, in which they tell the story of these three different members of this family I call The Sparks. And it's sort of a multi-generational story of just the hardships and struggles that they faced. It Wasn't Easy to Be Happy for You comes from the last section of the short film, which the short film is available now on their in multiple pieces on their um, YouTube channel, and I recommend checking it out. But it wasn't easy to be happy for you. It's just kind of like this whole thing about like, I mean, it's what the title sounds like. It's a very kind of Lumineer, uh, like definitely Lumineer style, darker, not darker, but like a bit more sad and slower kind of ballad about this this story of 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 a person who was never really satisfied with anything and and. No matter how hard you tried or whatever, it wasn't easy to be happy for them. And and um, it's just great. It just puts into perspective uh, like a lot of uh, a lot of things. And I think it really brings up emotions that that um, that a lot of us have felt at some point or another. You know, I think we all can think of a person or maybe even ourselves who regardless of of what blessings they may receive in life or how thing great things are it's it's hard for them to really understand that and 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 be satisfied and be happy or on vice versa you know there's people that sometimes get good things and it's harder for us to be happy for them and it's just great uh then the second one is jimmy sparks jimmy sparks has this really nice kind of slowed down tune and it's kind of like haunting hauntingly beautiful in the way with like its sound quality um like the b always just kind of i don't know gives me chills when i listen to it it's a story about jimmy sparks who's the father of the of the kid who like the last section is about and it just talks about how like it's this life story basically he was this you know well-to-do you know blue-collar uh american worker who you know very much believed in the American dream and very much believed in working his hardest and he was a hard worker, you know. Uh, he had a kid, but his wife walked out on him and he was left with his kid, and then things just started to go bad and bad and bad for him. And his his plant cut uh, his um, his job cut hours, and he was struggling. And one day his his you know the baby gets sick and he has to go to a uh, a pool hall I think or he goes somewhere to gamble money and what he makes he. He goes and takes the baby to the hospital, and as he's leaving, one of the people at the uh, the uh, bar laughs and says, "They leave, but they always end up coming back." And then this, you know, the song goes on to pretty much explain that Jamie Sparks was this guy who ended up becoming addicted to gambling and took loans, and eventually caught up to him. And it's just a really dark yet beautiful kind of story that they're telling. The lyrics are really good. I like, like I said, the tune is what gets me every time. Just the sort of the the um the instrumentals in the background or whatever they're just it kind of rises and falls and very much like the story does and of course um wesley has a beautiful voice and and it just fits so perfectly here uh the next one is a film that i actually just watched for the first time so i already know but get out of here with your you haven't seen this movie i know and 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 I, i'm a little ashamed of myself for not having seen it before this point but it's ferris bueller's day off uh, if you've never heard of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's inspired a lot of movies since its time, a lot of coming of age, these kind of like high school 
uh, teenage stories about teenage angst and teenage life and just, but it's, it's directed by John Hughes, who has gone on to inspire a bunch of other filmmakers. Um, the one that comes to mind is John Watts. He very much, he very much sort of, uh, tries to, uh, bring John Hughes, uh, vision and his directing style to his films i mean spider-man far or homecoming is very very ferris bueller's day off-esque i mean they even have the scene where they completely mirror it where he's running through the suburban uh yards but it's a it's a story of this kid ferris who you know fakes a sick day to stay home but he's really like he's been duping his parents for a long time and he's just wanting to go out and have fun and he calls his buddy cameron who's this really like wound up uh, a kid from like he, you know he might be this kind of rich this kind of he might be this rich kid but he's lived a harder life than than the story really lets on because his whole life he's been pushed around by other people and he's always been afraid to stand up for himself or whatever but anyway so ferris invites him to go out on this day with him and they figure out a way to get ferris's girlfriend out of school or whatever and it's just it's a very small centered story but ultimately it's about a way bigger issue in a way grander story than than message than it's letting on at first uh the um the whole time you're thinking that it's very much just like the story of uh of ferris and his escapade to get out of school or whatever but then towards the end of the film you you, you start to realize that it's actually about this other character and about that character coming to terms with their life and helping the, the you could argue that the movie is actually about him and that or them and that main character is the the uh or that character is the main character, while Ferris is merely there to help push him along, push them along his path. There, okay, fine, it's Cameron. I was trying not to spoil it, but I keep messing up here. So ultimately, at the end, we get this sort of uh, moment of realization, this sort of growth with Cameron's character, where he ultimately decides that he's no longer going to be pushed around. He's going to stand up to his dad. He's going to stand up to Ferris and people like that, and he's going to start taking responsibilities and start living life. You know, this whole time he's he's been this perfect child, and he even has no idea what he wants to do. But now, for once, he knows what he wants to do with his life, and that's be someone who stands up for himself. And it's really great. I mean, it's very '80s, but it's so fun. You know, it's good writing, great acting. Matthew Broderick is very charming in it. Uh, and uh, it's just a fun movie. Definitely recommend it if you're looking for something to just kind of put on, something a little more laid back, just kind of a fun movie to watch over the weekend or whatever, then Ferris Bueller's Day Off is my recommendation. Right now it's on Netflix, but you know Netflix. Nothing ever lasts on there too long, so I check it out before it leaves. Next up is a movie that you can still catch in theaters because it's back, especially, well, at least in Cinemarks. It's back because of its Oscar nomination. And that is the brilliantly colorful, the brilliantly colorful film that I talked about in last week's episode, or last time's episode, uh, *Knives Out*. It was written and directed by Ryan Johnson, and it's this very colorful and exciting and um, sort of twisting and confusing whodunit. It basically the story is this this uh, head of this family, this rich family, who uh, he. Um, he passes away under mysterious circumstances and all the family gets together and they're all questioned by the police and this private detective, this private Southern detective played by um, uh, Daniel Craig of James Bond fame. Uh, but um, they're all brought together as, a, as the whole, as the police and the viewer are trying to determine who murdered uh, the head of the family. And it's, it's just like every time I've, I've seen it once, I'm, I'm probably going to go check it out again. But as you, 
as you're sitting through the movie, you think you've got it figured out. You think you know what's coming. You think you know who did it. And every time the movie seems to be encouraging you and your belief, and it's like, yeah, 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 they did it. They did it. It's like this. And then ultimately, last minute, it takes a completely different turn, and you're left starting to guess again. And I honestly, I love these kind of movies, whodunits, and I really didn't expect it to be the person that it was in the end. That really took me by surprise. And it's got a great, fantastic cast, great costume and set design. Chris Evans uh, is in it and gets to play against type as this very, like, mouthy and, and uh, uh, sort of brash, uh, foul mouth uh, uh, um, socialite and, and Catherine Lanford. Um, uh, you've got... Uh, Anna de Armas, um, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette. I mean, it's just a fantastic, fantastic cast and just great writing. That was the thing that I honestly, truly loved was just how amazing the writing in this film was. I mean, Ryan Johnson totally deserves the Oscar for, uh, um, I think it's uh, Best Original Screenplay or whatever, because it's phenomenal. He just nailed it. He fucking hit it out of the park with the writing in that film. It's great. And then lastly, I've got this recommendation of this short film by this sort of up-and-coming amateur filmmaker, uh, which has recently been accepted into some short film festivals and is going to be premiering at its first short film festival this this uh, this weekend in Helper, Utah, at the uh, Butch Cassidy Film Festival. It's this small indie film by the name of Static, uh, which centers around this guy, uh, this kid, this kid, this guy, this young man, uh, Nathan, as he struggles with the death of his friend Ben, and begins to hear Ben's voice through the static of an old radio, and it's very much about his journey and how he deals with, with, um, with uh, the loss of him, his friend, and how he deals with sort of grief and how he overcomes it. Look, it's my short film, and I know I'm recommending my own stuff, and I'm one of those guys. But really, we put a lot of work into it. We, you know. We are very proud of the, how the story came out. Me and my co-writer, Max Banyan, friend of the log. And, um, yeah, I just, I really would, would like to recommend it. I think a lot of people enjoyed it. It's not great. It's got its issues. It's got its cinematography flaws and shot composition and color correcting. And, but, you know, we did the best with what we could. And I think overall it's a really good story. So I definitely recommend checking it out. And like I said, leaving a like. You can find it on my personal YouTube channel, Jose Valle Jr. or on Animal Productions. Uh, but yeah, go ahead, check it out, let me know what you guys think. Are you thinking about taking a trip anytime soon? Well, for those of you still in school, spring break is coming up fast, so now is the time to start thinking about your travel plans. It's 2020, so I'm assuming that most of you have heard of Airbnb at this point. If you don't already have an account with them, then let me tell you, you are missing out. Airbnb is a great tool that helps you find great places to stay all over the world. You can find incredible stays for affordable prices, much better than staying at some rinky-dink motel that you found last minute that is going to charge you so much money for one night of uncomfortable sleep. I use Airbnb every time I travel, and I'm always satisfied. For those of you who have not used it before, you can get $40 off your first home booking and get $15 toward an experience worth $50 or more by clicking the link in the show notes. So go get started now and enjoy your travels. Who amongst us hasn't dreamed of achieving greatness? True greatness. A status level in which people who never knew you would talk about you long after you're gone. Those of us who have dedicated our lives to a specific field have at some point or another struggled and strived 
to become one of the greatest in said field. The athlete pushes himself to reach physical and technical perfection within his sport, sacrificing countless hours in the weight room or on the field, pushing his body to its limits, experiencing exhaustion and pain just to keep going. The artist does a similar thing. He spends countless hours creating and creating over and over again until he achieves his masterpiece. And the writer, we do it too. For those of us who still write on paper, you know, like treatments, we spend countless hand-numbing hours writing down stories that come into mind and countless more hours rewriting and revising. We push ourselves not just to physical exhaustion, but mental exhaustion as well. In this film, we see exactly that. Whiplash shows us a level of dedication and strive like that of a professional athlete in a field that perhaps most of us had never considered. Jazz music. Whiplash is a lot like a sports drama, and the director has stated that this was on purpose. Within this film, we get our hero pushing himself and training to achieve a great level of success. We see him face trials and defeat, be brought down, and then rise to the occasion at the last minute. This film takes the relationship between a student and his teacher and turns it into a thriller that acts as a social commentary about what it takes to succeed in a world that has increasingly become competitive and cutthroat. A promising young drummer enrolls at a cutthroat music conservatory where his dreams of greatness are mentored by an instructor who will stop at nothing to realize a student's full potential. Now that depiction right there is a polite way of putting it. The teacher Terence Fletcher, played by J.K. Simmons, is a man who, whose style of teaching and developing the talent of his students could very much be described by the title of the film. He praises them one second while berating and humiliating them the next. His lessons, one could argue, often feel like psychological torture. In the first scene of the film, we see Andrew, played by Miles Teller, practicing late one night as he is interrupted by the presence of Fletcher, the leader of the school's most important jazz band. He asks him to play for him before quickly leaving the room and thus dismissing Andrew. After this, Andrew believes that he has blown his shot, but the truth is that this is just part of Fletcher's game. It's his whole barbarous style of teaching. Fletcher likes to tell the story of how Joe Jones threw a cymbal at Charlie Parker's head one night when he messed up, thereby pushing him to the uh, breaking point at which he became Bird. Without that symbol, would music history be the same? Would Charlie Parker have gone home, refined practice, and driven himself without the threat of not just failure, but physical violence? After interrupting his lower-level band class, Fletcher invites Andrew to come sit in as an alternate for his studio band the next morning, telling him to arrive at 6 a.m. when practice didn't start until 9 However, it should be noted that when Fletcher does this, invites Andrew to be a part of the studio band, it's not because he sees talent, which is there, sure, but rather because he sees drive, a desire to truly be one of the greats. And that is something he believes he can mold into musical perfection. While his techniques and manner of how he goes about getting the best from his students may be unethical and skewed, he is not completely wrong in his pursuit. In a world where we find ourselves constantly praising mediocrity, in an era of praise, as it were, in which everyone 
receives participation ribbons. Every person thinks they are a photographer or videographer after picking up a camera for the first time. Thinks they're a writer because they have a blog where they put their feelings. Where a 15-year-old lip-syncing somebody else's performance can receive millions of views and become wealthy overnight. And people continuously build up their egos by giving them praise for doing the most basic and uninspiring things. As Brian Tallarico, editor of the uh, Roger Ebert website, says... One has to ask the question, have true talents been left to wither because they were overwatered? So when we hear Fletcher vocalize his reasoning behind his teaching by saying that the two most harmful words in the English language are good job, he's not entirely wrong. The whole film is very much depictive of its title. Just as you think, you understand the film to be a cautionary tale about the dangers of allowing one's ego to become so inflated that you believe you can stop pushing yourself or how dangerous it can become it can be to become obsessed with something like becoming the best that you lose sight of what is important and close yourself off from the world it whips itself into a frenzy of a climax in which all lines are blurred and leaves you wondering for a moment if the suffering might not have been worth it I think Josh Larson from Film Spotting put it best by saying, By its end, Whiplash makes you wonder if perfection might in fact be relative. From the judge's perspective, the competition performance may have been a train wreck, but in that one brief moment, Andrew and Fletcher believe they've attained it. Now, let's get down into my breakdown of the film as I watched it. Right at the beginning, there's the great directorial style and cinematography that that I like to think we love from Chazelle's films, right at the start of the movie with a push-in down the hallway. And that slow push-in is real good. Because it's... So the whole movie's kind of framed like a thriller horror movie, and this push-in, especially at the beginning, sort of helps demonstrate and nail that point. It kind of feels like something slowly creeping in to to almost attack uh, Andrew at the drums. But then quickly we pan around to see that it's Fletcher. And almost immediately from the start, we get a sense of Fletcher's unhingedness and sort of frightening and towering persona, which is a great introduction to the character. Fletcher always wears these tight black shirts that sort of add to his domineering presence. I love, love jazz music. And while I've read a lot of papers where people go on to say that this isn't jazz, the music in this movie isn't jazz, and they got it all wrong or whatever. Shut up. Shut up. The 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 music in this film is phenomenal. Justin Hurwitz, out, uh, you know, was showing us his his capability before he went on to do La La Land, and that first score piece is Chef's Kiss. I like this sort of unconventional establishing shots of New York that sh- that were shown at the beginning of the film, which sort of shows us the dirty side of things, which breaks the traditional glamour shots that we are used to in movies. Instead of getting Times Square and the Empire State Building and the skyline and, you know, whatever, we get shots of garbage, of dirty apartments with air conditioning units, of rundown, you know, uh, uh, shops or whatever. And it's great. It's great because it's the real, the reality of which this character lives. And and it's, I, the, the little raisinettes exchange with Andrew and his father, although it may seem like it's meant to be nothing, Uh, sort of nothing conversation, it gives a glimpse into the character of Andrew. He's someone who always does whatever pleases everyone else without taking into consideration his own feelings. 
he'd rather find a way to conform with the status quo than to break it. When his when his dad catches him eating around the raisinets, he's like, well, come on, have some raisinets. He's like, well, I don't like raisinets. And he's like, why didn't you say anything? He's like, it's fine. I'll eat around it. I do, like I mentioned, I love the visual aesthetic of the... Um, of uh, the movie, the color palette is good because it's sort, it's not flashy. It's not like Chazelle's other film, La La Land, which is a very colorful and bright movie. It's a for, very gloomy and drab kind of look, which fits the story and almost reminds us of a horror film. I love how Fletcher enters the room in this dramatic fashion, like a powerful gust of wind, the door swinging open, because he is very much commanding force of nature, and we're starting to get glimpses into what this character means, not just to Andrew, but to the other students around him. And I love his little comments to the lower band as he makes them play for him, as he goes one by one, and he gets, you know, like when he gets to the girl, and he's like, ah, oh, your first chair, let's see if it is, if it's not just because you're cute, and then she plays like two notes, and he's like, yep, it's because you're cute. It's an interesting thing that Andrew asks Nicole out after he gets invited to play with this, with Fletcher's man. Because we've all been there. You know, something goes good in our life and then we think we can take on the world. But it also starts to show us how Andrew's ego begins to be built up. Now that he's made into the studio band, he's like, well, shit, now I can ask that girl that I've been had a crush on for forever every time I go to the movie theater. There are some really nice close-up shots in this that I quite like. Um, I know people complained about this as well, but I liked it because that's kind of what I like about Chazelle's style, uh, where he very much makes sure that you understand that this is a jazz movie or movie about music, and he shows us these close-up shots of, of uh, you know, the re- the reeds, the musicians licking their reeds, warming up their instruments, emptying their spit valves, and it's just. It's great. That first scene with Fletcher and his band, uh, there's so much to unpack with it. Uh, For the starters, the fact that they all keep their eyes down to the ground when he enters again elevates this character to this godlike status. It's It's like they're a dog that's afraid of their owner. The fact that with a single swish of his hand, they are at the ready, it's almost like he's a general and they are his soldiers and he commands them and they're, you know, it's... His his comments to the band members when they screw up, Jesus Christ, those are fucking um, hilarious, yet also incredibly horrifying. And they show you how terrifying this this man is. Uh, like when when he yells at the when he's asking who was flat, and the kind of bigger kid says that he was, and he's got his head down. He's like, "What are you looking at? There's no fucking Mars bar down there, or whatever." It's just great. Then. Um, that scene where he is trying to determine who is out of tune, you feel the intensity equal to if you were watching someone about to be murdered on screen. And then when the confrontation comes, you feel it in your bones. But the revelation that he was not the one out of tune because he didn't, but because he didn't know he wasn't is why he had to go shows you two things, the dedication and intensity of Fletcher and the great writing in this film. The little talk that Fletcher gives Andrew in the hallway is great because it makes both Andrew and the audience put their defenses down because we assume he's maybe not a bad guy. And I just, I, I love Chazelle's obsession with a bird. I mean, if you've watched La La Land, he, he's always bringing up bird. And uh, I don't know, I think that was just fun. I like that. Also, the comment about how Charlie Parker became bird after Jones threw a symbol at his head foreshadows what happens to Andrew later on in that scene when Fletcher throws a chair at his head. And perhaps for a moment, we see, we are to believe that Fletcher does what he does, not because he's an asshole, but because he wants to make Andrew the best that he can be. And, that's, and again, we see a glimpse into his real motivation. 
Ah, I hate how Andrew puts his defenses down and believes this nice guy act that Fletcher puts on. The not-quite-my-tempo scene is... Ooh, Jesus, that's one of, I think, one of my favorite moments of cinema. You have to see it because you feel so much emotion as you're watching it. And it's a slow descent into madness for Fletcher. And as he begins to cry, he make, gives the comment of, Oh, Jesus Christ, are you one of those single-tier people? And I just, I love that throwaway line. The practicing scene where Andrew keeps playing until his hands bleed is just so fucking intense. You know, again, it's I read a comment of one of the reviews for this film while I was doing preparing this episode, and it was like, I didn't know that there was so much blood involved in drumming. Like, yeah, that's it's just, I love this movie because it shows you something that you might have never thought about. And it shows you how crazy the level of dedication is. And that fucking shift from Fletcher, uh, from for Fletcher from being nice to the little girl to immediately calling his band cocksuckers really showcases J.K. Simmons' fucking brilliant acting ability. Being able to play both sides of this complicated character on the flip of a dime. The whole folder fiasco, clearly one of Fletcher's tests, which again gives us a glimpse into a Fletcher that isn't a total asshole, but just a devoted musician who does have a heart and maybe does want to help Andrew reach his full potential because it's obvious that he took the folder to put Andrew in this sort of testing uh, ground to where he could prove himself uh, and see if his drive uh, uh, was, was what he thought of it. And sure enough, Andrew had the the music memorized by heart, unlike uh, the other other, uh, Tanner, the other um, drummer. Fuck yes. I love that scene after the concert where Fletcher walks in and tells Tanner it's core only and to get off the set so Andrew can get on. And I also love the sort of shaky push-in that we get into Andrew's face. And that's just... Chazelle does it a lot in his movies, and I just absolutely love that. The dinner scene... Uh, reminds me of so many awkward interactions that I've had like that. Fuck his family. Where people, because you do a thing that's that's not traditionally uh, something that everybody loves, they sort of ignore you or what you have to say. How's your movie thing going? How's that whole like video thing going? Like, fuck off. Fuck off. It's, it's great. It's a brilliant, it's also a brilliant piece of cinema. And again, you should watch it. The framing in that is really, really uh, interesting. The comebacks in that scene, though, are phenomenal, and I, I love that. It's just great writing. Uh, that test of Fletcher's is brilliant, where he brings in this crappy drummer from Andrew's concert band to take Andrew's spot because he's because the lesson he's trying to teach Andrew is that he does you should never become comfortable. No matter how good you are, you should never be comfortable. And Andrew had become comfortable at this point. He was very confident in himself and the fact that he was, he'd was he earned the spot. The Andrew is a jackass. And that breakup scene demonstrates it clearly. He's an obsessed, he's become this obsessed prick who thinks very highly of himself, but, but he didn't start out that way. It's his time with Fletcher and the studio band that warps his mentality. And Nicole's prompting of him shows it. Where she's like, but you're not the greatest now. And he's like, no. She's like, and you know if you stayed with me, I would stop you from being great. And he's like, yeah. And she's like, you know that for a fact? He's like, yeah, I do. Like, who? He's like a robot in that scene. Also, fuck you. How could you break up with Melissa Benoist, you fucking dunce? 
I love that bloody hand into the pitcher of ice water shot. It just... Mm. The scene is also... That scene is also the scene in which we begin to see Andrew start to unravel and his hatred for Fletcher begins. Uh, that scene with him making the drummer stay and play until they have it right shows how much of an authoritarian Fletcher is. The confrontation with Fletcher and Andrew is interesting because this whole time we are meant to think that Fletcher is the asshole and the bad guy, but we now see that it is actually Andrew who has become the self-entitled prick who thinks he is the best at what he's doing. The scene with Andrew dragging himself out of the car and still going to the performance, it's inspiring as you might initially think, but it's also terrifying, and it shows you how obsessed Andrew has become. I have to give it to Miles Teller on that performance. It's, it's, it's fucking amazing in that scene with him struggling to play and then going berserk on Fletcher. And we finally see the truth be behind Fletcher's motivation. But we also see that he is much like Andrew. He believes he is doing good for people, pushing them to their potential. He is so set in his ways, but then again, it's a great monologue. Fuck that line. I'll, I'll have to check... With my boyfriend? Oh, that line. That shatters every man's hopes and dreams. Ah, and there he goes again. Deceiving us all. Fletcher once again gets Andrew and the audience to drop their defenses again and open themselves to be annihilated. And God, and with that interaction, I know it was you. Terrence Fletcher sets out to destroy Andrew's career out of spite and resentment and get his sweet, sweet revenge. And yet Andrew shows that he just wasn't some prick. He did have it. And that he won't give in and he won't conform to, others people's act, to other people's actions anymore, to the status quo. He will now make people conform to his rules, his way. And I like how in that last scene you can see Fletcher begin to change as the realization dawns on him that maybe, just maybe, he does have a Charlie Parker. And in that scene we also get one of my favorite Chazelle techniques, which is that fast as hell pan between subjects. It, fuck, with that buildup of the drums, your heart begins to crawl out of your chest. Just what a film. This is why it's my pick for the best movie of 2014. It's just fucking phenomenal. Whiplash is very much a cautionary tale. That ambition and driver healthy, but if left unchecked, can spiral into dangerous obsession. But again, then again, it's much more than that. It can also be seen as a sort of coming of age a coming-of-age story for, for its main character. Andrew becomes this man who no longer puts up with other people's shit, but now stands up and no longer conforms, go, makes his own path, goes down his own path, and now sets out to make others conform to him. It's a very complex film with great performances, great writing, beautiful cinematography, and phenomenal direction. And with that, it's time to wrap the show up. If you like the show, make sure to leave a five-star review, which you can do in-app. I'd really appreciate it. Plus, it really helps the show. And I'll read your review on the show, just like I'm going to read J23432's review. He writes, Really good podcast. Your ideas slash topics are really well thought out, and your voice adds a type of mysticness to the podcast, and it keeps the listener enticed and locked in. Thanks, Jay, for that review. Really appreciate it. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash captainslogcast and donate a dollar or similarly you can do uh, you can donate whatever amount you'd like on Venmo by Venmoing J Valle27. That's J V A L L E twenty seven. Anything helps keep the lights on, guys. You know, 
if you donate, it all goes towards improving the show, getting better recording equipment, helps me with my other creative endeavors, for example, my short films. I'm a broke college student, guys. I could really, really use the help. And of course, if you donate, not only will I be really, really thankful and you'll help me get on, on my creative journey, but you will also get a shout out on the show. I'm talking about a social media shout out. If you have something that you want me to plug, then donate and let me know and I will do so. You can follow me on Instagram at j.valle underscore junior and the show on Twitter at Captain's Log Pod. Let's try to get the show's Twitter to 50 followers. We're at 25 right now, uh, but I recommend movies on there and post show updates and tweet some occasionally funny things. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can find me as Jose Valle Jr., Animal Productions, and of course the show's official YouTube channel, Captain's Log. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the show if you enjoy it, and if you'd like to tell me why I'm stupid for my analysis and why it suck, please do so by writing into captainslogcast at gmail.com. You can suggest episode topics, guests you'd like to have back, or recommendations for Check This Out. Make sure to subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play in any other podcast directory. Our new theme was created by Max Banyan, and his stuff will be linked in the show notes. The sources slash inspiration for my analysis will also be linked in the show notes. And with that, everybody, we have reached the end of our show. Tune in next time at the same time and on the same frequency for another episode. I've been your Captain Jose Valle Jr., and this has been Captain's Log. End of transmission.